excited to do this without a sleeping child on me this time. This morning's scripture reading is from Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of, every, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. So if you were, if you were stranded on a desert island, and you could only take one thing with you, what would you take? If you, uh, guys, your uh, wife, you need to make sure you say your wife is your first answer to that, if you're married. Other than your wife, what would you take? You only take one thing. If you could only take one outfit. <laughs> Got some comments in the peanut gallery? Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, you've been stranded on a desert island, someone back there apparently? Didn't, didn't take their spouse. Okay. Okay. Uh, yeah, if you could only take one outfit... What would you take? Uh, if you could only take one CD, I know we don't listen to CDs anymore, but let's pretend that for whatever reason you have a CD player and you'd only have one CD, what CD would you take to listen to? What book? If you only take one book, what book would you take? Now, we're in church. You're all going to say the Bible, right? Good answer. But what if you couldn't even take a book? What if, what if all you could do is take a five-by-eight note card and you could, somehow you know in advance you're going to be stranded on this desert island. And so you can write, you have some sort of premonition, right? So you, you, you have a five by eight note card is all you're going to be able to keep. What would you write on it? Now we're continuing in our series called Overall. And the, the central theme of this whole series is that Jesus is Lord over all. And of course, primarily what we're doing is we're going through the book of Colossians. That's what we have been doing the last couple of weeks, and that's what we're going to continue to do. And last week, we came to the central passage in the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. And as I said, that that, that passage is really the heart of the book of Colossians. In many ways, you could say it's one of the central passages in all of the Bible that it really sort of sums up the whole Bible. I talked about how if, if you made a Bible smoothie, right, you took all the different books of the Bible, all the different books from Genesis all the way through, you took all the different books of the Bible and you put them in a blender and you made a smoothie and you wanted to know what would it taste like, what would it taste like? It would taste like Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. So it is, it is one of the central passages. And so... As you might imagine, if you were stranded on a desert island and you could only take a five-by-eight note card and you knew in advance, 
I think one thing you might want to seriously consider is writing down Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. However, you could also write down Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, the passage that Kim just read. That this passage is, is sort of like the best friend of Colossians 1, 15 through 23. The, the, Colossians 1, 15 through 23 and Philippians 2, 5 through 11 are like, are like Abbott and Costello. Simon and Garfunkel, Thelma and Louise. Like these, these two, they're like best friends. They're like peas in a pod. And they, really because they, they drive home, they drive home this same central theme. And that is that Jesus is Lord over all. Jesus is Lord over all. Jesus is God. Jesus is God. We, we see this. Let me turn here. Verse 6 of the passage that was read today. Just beginning there, right off the bat, we see it proclaiming the lordship of Jesus, the divinity of Jesus. In verse 6, the Jesus who, being in very nature God, being in very nature God, and and that's really what the word means. There have been some translations will translate the word as the form of God, but that, that misses it. That misses what the Greek is really saying. It's the nature of God. Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider, and we're going to go into this later here, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. What that means is he did not consider that equality, that power that he had, as something to hold on to. He did not see his divinity as something to exploit. He did not see that power as God as something that he should hold on to. That, we're going we're gonna to come to that. But again, going down here in verse, verse 9, okay, it, well, we read on. It says, but he made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death even on a cross. We'll come to that later. Verse 9, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. Now, what's important to know about, about in, in the Bible, when somebody would give somebody a name, they would give them a name because they already saw that quality in them. Right? So when Esau was given the name Esau, Esau means hairy. Because so they gave him the name, he said, because he was hairy. That's what he was. He already had that. That's what he was. He was hairy. Uh, Jacob, Jacob was called Jacob. Jacob means, it literally means to, to hold on to. The, it's like to hold on to the heel. It's, it, it figuratively means to deceive. But it's because when he came out, he was holding on to the heel, right? He's holding on to the heel of Esau. And so the name was given to reflect a quality that was already in them. And that's what's going on here. It's saying he's being given the name above all names because that's what he is. And he's being restored to that. He is one with God. He is divine. He is the name. He is the name above all names. Then in verses 10 through 11, that every, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Now, what's going on here is it's actually quoting from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 45, and I want to read to you that verse and give it a little bit of context. 
Isaiah chapter 45, uh, beginning in verse 22 is where I'm going to read. And then in 20, 23 is when it begins to, is, is the passage which Philippians alludes to. In verse 22, it says, Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. For I am God, there is no other. So, to make it clear, God is talking at this point. This is Yahweh talking to the people of God. I am God, and there is no other. Then he goes on. By myself I have sworn, my mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. Before me every knee will bow, by me every tongue will swear. He's talking about himself. He's talking about himself. Now, in Philippians, when it makes this allusion to God, what does it do? It puts Jesus right in the middle of it. This passage that, re- that did apply to Yahweh, that applied to the God of the Old Testament, in the New Testament is now being, in the New Testament, is being used to refer to Jesus. And we've seen this time and time again. We saw this in Colossians that Paul would allude to or make reference to an Old Testament passage which is talking about God but then put Jesus right in the middle of it. We saw in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, he does that with the Shema, the central prayer of the Hebrew people. He takes that, and in 1 Corinthians 8, he alludes to it, but puts Jesus right in the middle of it. And then the same thing he's doing right here. He's saying that God of the Old Testament, that is Jesus. Jesus is God. Jesus is Lord over all. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth. When it's talking about that, of course, in the Roman world, they lived in a a polytheistic world where they worshipped many gods. Uh, There there were thousands of gods, and they were pretty happy to worship various different gods here and there. But they also, you know, they believed that the, the gods were in the heavens and the stars sort of represented the gods. That's where we get astrology from and all of that. And so when it says that, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, it's talking about people on earth, and it's talking about the gods, these other gods. So it's saying Jesus is God. Not, not only is he God, but he's, he's the only real God. He's the only, he is supreme and superior over all other gods. He's the one. Now, we live in a culture which struggles with the idea that we would believe that Jesus is somehow Lord over all. That, that in our culture, it, we are often told that, well, really, we should, we should be willing to see uh, different gods as equal. Or, you know, you've got your way of seeing things. You've got your God, and I've got my God. And we should just kind of, kind of let one another worship our own gods and, and not try to say that one is is supreme over the other. And it sounds very tolerant. It sounds very inclusive. It sounds very, very welcoming. But what we need to remember, and you've heard me say this before, and that is that inclusivism is closet exclusivism. Inclusivism is closet exclusivism. In other words, this inclusivist stance is just as exclusive as the so-called exclusivism of Christianity. Let me give you another way of putting this. I, I was at, speaking at a retreat this weekend. That's why I'm sort of losing my voice because I've been kind of speaking <clears throat> all, all weekend. Dave Abad, I actually worked more than an hour and a half this week. You'll be happy to know. Dave always tells me I only work an hour and a half uh, each week. I actually worked more than that this week. Um, 
Anyway, I was speaking at this retreat, and I was, I was talking about how one time I was, I was at the barber, and I have interesting conversations at the barbershop. Got into a religious conversation, and the barber said something along the lines of, well, you know, I, I don't think we should try to share our faith with others, try to, get, try to convert others to what we believe. Um, I, don't, you know, I don't think we should try to convert the others to think that Jesus is the only way. And in that moment, I realized, like, if, if I had said, you're right, you're right, we, we, shouldn't, we shouldn't do that. Do you realize what would have just happened in that moment? I would have been converted. I would have been converted to his way of thinking. He just, he just evangelized me. He just shared his faith with me, tried to convince me to convert to his religion. He didn't realize he was doing that, but that's exactly what he was doing. So that inclusivist position is just as exclusivist as our so-called exclusivism. You, you really can't, you can't get around that. And if, if we're faithful to what the Bible really says about Jesus, we have to see he, he is Lord over all. That is the claim that is being made. Jesus is Lord over all. We can't just, you know, you can't just... Jesus has one little bobblehead on your dashboard, right? The Jesus bobblehead, right? We can't just have Jesus as one little bobblehead alongside all the other little bobbleheads in our life. No, this, this is saying that Jesus is the Lord over all. And what I love about this passage is that it does exactly the same thing that Colossians does. Again, this, this letter is also written by Paul, and I think that Paul finds himself in a little bit of a quandary anytime he wants to really unpack who Jesus is. It seems like, if based on Colossians and Philippians, that every time he tries to think about how to explain who Jesus is, he just gives up and just picks out a hymn. He's like, I want to tell them how great Jesus is. I want to tell them who Jesus is. I want to tell them how majestic Jesus is. And I can imagine him sitting there thinking, well, I could say this, I could say this, I could say this. And he just gives up and picks out a hymn. That's what he does in Colossians, it seems. He just picks out a hymn. It's quite likely that uh, Colossians 1, 15 through 20 is a hymn uh, that existed in the early church. If not, Paul just decided to write one on the spot. We don't really know. Same thing here in Philippians. He's like, it's, it's almost too amazing to just write out in straight prose. You know, every time I try to t- tell you that I love you, the words just came out wrong. So I had to say, I love you in a song. It's like he has to do the same thing, but there's something about it. There's something about it that is so big and so majestic that it can only be captured through art. This is why I, I you know, I mean, as an artist myself, I like to say, I, I like to say that I think that, uh, I like to say that I, I think that all artists really should be Christians. I don't know how you can be an artist and not be a Christian because of the artistry that is at the heart of the Christian faith. That there's almost something poetic about the central event itself. The event of Jesus, the coming of Jesus, the event itself is almost poetic. This is actually exactly what Bono, the Nobel Prize winning Irish rocker says. He says, I believe in the poetic genius of a creator who would choose to express such unfathomable power as a child born in straw poverty. The story of Christ makes sense to me. As an artist, I see the poetry of it. There's just something about the person of Jesus, the story of Jesus, that almost cannot be captured unless you use a poem or a song or art or something along those lines. And so we see, once again, Paul doing this in Colossians. We see him doing it here in Philippians. And again, 
what is he simply trying to get across in both these passages? Jesus is God. Jesus is Lord over all. But here in Philippians, it goes farther than that. It goes farther than that because he doesn't just show us that Jesus is God. He gives us a window into the kind of God that Jesus is. Okay, Jesus is God, but what, kind, what does that mean? What kind of a God is he? And as you read through this, as you read through this, what you discover is something that is just mind-blowing. And, and mind-blowing in, in any culture. And, and that is that at the very heart of who Jesus is, is a God of humility. A God of humility. A God who, who gives up his power to serve. We, we see this humility in Jesus. We see three levels of humility going on. Just in this passage with regards to Jesus humbling himself. First of all, we see he humbles himself and he becomes a man. He becomes a human being. So already he kind of downgrades, gives up his power, and becomes a human being. Then he doesn't just become a human being, we see in this passage. He becomes a servant, right? He doesn't, like, come as a human king as a, as a, 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 with, a, with a big entourage, a big army behind him. He comes as a servant. So not only does he humble himself, you think he'd be at least like, well, look, if I'm going to become a human being, I'm going to be a sweet, you know, tough, whatever. I'm going to rule everything. He doesn't do that. He, comes, he doesn't come as a king. He doesn't come as a president. He comes, he comes as a servant. He comes as a servant. So that's the second level of humility. And then thirdly, he gives his life. As if these first couple of levels of, of condescension weren't enough, ultimately he even gives his life for us. So we come to this, I think, profound truth about who Jesus is. And we come to this profound truth about how God is God and how God rules the very universe that he created. How does he rule the very world that he created? And, and really, it's just there is a paradox at the heart of the Christian faith, because here's what it is. God rules... Jesus rules not through the wielding of power, but through the relinquishing of it. He rules not through the wielding of power, but through the relinquishing of it. Somehow that's how he rules. He, he gives it up. And, and just think about how completely opposite that is to our concept of God and what God is supposed to be like. I mean, when, when you put it this way. We've all heard the phrase, oh, he's playing God. Somebody is playing God. And just that phrase itself means, you know, they're, they're trying to wield tremendous amount of power. So somebody who, people have said things like trying to create nuclear weapons. That's playing God. You're playing God if you do that. Or genetic engineering. If you try to tamper with the genetic code of a human being, it's like you're playing God. You're just trying to wield this tremendous power. And that's just what we think of when we think of God, that, right? I mean, if you, you know, if you have a boss that you says, oh my gosh, they think they're God, you usually don't mean they're so nice and they like to serve. And that's not what you mean. I mean, you know, your boss thinks they're God. That's not what you mean. It's just, in, it's just ingrained in us, this idea that 
Well, God is, that means power, and they use power to rule over. I, I remember I had this, uh, my, I'm going to blame it on my brother's children. But when I was visiting them, this was a number of years ago, they got a hold of my phone. This is why you put a passcode on your phone. And they, they put the, the, an app, the video game Pocket God. Anybody have this on their phone? Because they're all deleting it right now. Pocket God. Yeah, Tristan has it on his phone. Okay, that's scary. Okay. Uh, Pocket God. And it's this video game where you get to be God. You get to play God. And pretty much you just get to, you know, be really powerful and strong. And it's, it's kind of disturbing. You can pick people up and just throw them into the ocean. You can, you can take huge boulders and just drop them on people. I mean, it's just this, to play God, pocket God, means in this little world created in the app, you just have this unbelievable power that you can wield in all kinds of creative and oftentimes disturbing ways. But this is what we think of when we think of God. God is power. That's what it means to be God. But we see we see something so different in Jesus. And this, is, this was so, again, this was so different in the ancient world. In the ancient world, when they thought of God, they, they saw the same thing that we think of. In the, in the ancient world, actually, people like Alexander the Great, for example, Alexander Great, who was you know, one of the greatest conquerors in all of, all of history, right? There's that famous phrase from something where uh, Alexander wept for there were no more worlds to conquer. You guys remember that? I think it's from something famous. I remember it because it was quoted in, in Die Hard, but whatever. Anyway, um, so, but, so Alexander the Great was this incredibly powerful individual, and because of that, he began to be seen as godlike. They started to, to, to almost assume that maybe he was divine because this incredible wielding of power is what they thought of when they thought of what it means to be God. Same thing with, for example, the Emperor Augustus. And this, of course, is the, the, the kind of the great irony um, historically that Emperor Augustus was the emperor when Jesus was born. And Emperor Augustus also wielded tremendous amounts of power and, and, and unified the, the Roman Empire and just at that time became the greatest ruler that the world had seen. And he was also sometimes seen as godlike precisely because he had all of this power and he wielded this power. That's just what we think of when we think of God. Until we look at Jesus. And we find this tremendous paradox that somehow, somehow he rules the world not through the wielding of his power, but through the relinquishing of it. It's like he's so in control. That he doesn't need to wield power, he can relinquish it. He's that in control. We see this, I love this in another passage in Revelation chapter 5. Revelation, again, this is, I think of, of John who wrote this as an artist. Because there's just so much artistic imagery and, and, and poetic imagery that is, is used throughout this. Because really... Throughout the book, John is simply trying to describe things that you just can't really describe with words. So he's trying to use pictures and images to try to get across the enormity of who God is. And I love this in, in Revelation chapter 5. Let me just read to you, beginning in verse 2. So he, he's having this vision, right? He's having this vision. 
And he says, I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seas. Seven seals. So imagine this. He's looking up. He's, he's having this vision. And in the vision, this, this elder looks at him and says, look over here. And he points in the direction. He says, see, look over here. Look over here. And he's saying, here's what you're going to see when you look over there. When you look over there, you're going to see the lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah. You're going to see the great conquering king who is like a lion. So John would be a magic. Can't wait to turn over there. And there's going to be this roaring lion, right, in this imagery. And look what happens when he turns to see the lion. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. Look, see, the lion, the one who is sovereign over all, who has victory over all, look. And when he looks, it's... a a lamb who has been slaughtered. It's this incredible way of declaring that the way in which the God who has revealed himself to us at Jesus, the way in which he rules is not through the wielding of power, but through the relinquishing, the relinquishing of it. Okay, what does that mean for us today? How do we apply this to our lives and I would say this, that as Christians, we don't win through fighting, we win through serving. We don't win through fighting, we win through serving. In whatever wars we find ourselves, in whatever culture wars we find ourselves We don't win by fighting, we win by serving. In whatever culture wars we happen to be in, you might have a war, a culture war going on in your marriage. Every marriage has a a culture about it. And you you might have a war going on in the culture of your marriage. And what I would tell you is that the way that you win that war is not by fighting, by serving. Or another way of putting it is that you fight with selflessness against selfishness. What what do you do? What do you do if you're in a relationship where a person's being very selfish and they're just, they're, you know, they just drive the bus and everything that they do. Now, the tendency would be, well, I've got to fight back. So if they're selfish, I need to be selfish, right? This This is the culture. This is how we approach these sorts of Battles, and I see it happening in my own my own marriage, in my own family, right? And so, so you know, usually it'll start off with me being selfish, right? So, so I'm being selfish, and then my wife understandably feels like, well, I've got to, you know, if he's being selfish, then she'll look to start to protect herself. So now she's thinking about herself, herself, and so then the two of us are both fighting against each other, and it goes into what is sometimes called the crazy cycle, right? I mean, you just start spiraling downward because. 
the more they're being selfish, then the more you are going to be selfish, which is going to make them more selfish, and it just starts spiraling down and down and down and down and down. And I think if we, if we believe that Jesus is Lord over all, if we believe that he is king, then what that means is that his kingdom operates by a very different currency. It runs on a very different system, and that system is not through power, through selfishness and wielding power to get what you want. It's through serving. The way that we fight against selfishness is with selflessness. We win these culture wars, whether it's in our marriage or wherever else, not through fighting but serving. Maybe, maybe in the workplace, how do you fight against you know, within the workplace, there can become a, a culture of jockeying for position. You ever been in that sort of a workplace where everybody's trying to one-up the next person? Uh, everybody's trying to make themselves look better than the next person. And when, when one person starts doing this, then to respond, everybody else starts to do this. And you can just kind of get this culture of infighting and you know, maybe trying to make other people look bad in your own subtle ways, maybe not so subtle ways, trying to make yourself look good, and it, and it just becomes this, this culture of jockeying for position. How do we fight against that? Well, if Jesus is Lord over all, we fight against that not by fighting, but by serving. It's not by apathy, you see. It's not like we just, you know, we're passive and apathetic. It means that we serve. We serve them instead of fighting against them. I know uh, a friend of mine was telling me this, and and I've seen this take place in this individual's life, that they they were able to, um, in the company that they worked for, I remember them coming to me and telling me at one point that they had done this. They, They had really sought to serve. Instead of fighting, and, and they, were in a, they were in a company where everybody was jockeying for position. Everybody was trying to get to the next level, but, but they weren't. My friend really wasn't trying to do that, wasn't interested in doing that. It wasn't about getting to the next level. But really, they're about the only person that wasn't doing this. And, and they came to realize, they said, one of the most, they said it was an incredibly difficult environment to work in. But they came, they, he said to me that finally one of, the, one of the bosses came and said, you know what? You're the only person in this company anybody trusts. <laughs> You're the only person in this company that anybody trusts. And what was remarkable is this individual actually started to rise up the ladder. They weren't even trying to. Didn't even have the goals. Didn't even want to do this. But they just started to rise up because instead of jockeying for position, they were seeking to serve. I'm not saying that if you do that, you're going to rise up the corporate ladder. There's, we, we live in this, this, this uh, already not yet uh, culture where the kingdom of God is here, but it's also not. So there, there's, a, there's a tension there. But, but we see that if, if we believe that Jesus ultimately is Lord over all, then this means that when we find ourselves in these cultures, we don't win through fighting against it. We win through serving. And friends, I would say that that's true in the culture wars that we, we fight 
in the big picture as well. I think it's true. I think many of us sense that we, there are culture wars going on in our society and culture wars that are at odds with what we as believers believe in a lot of different ways. And I think we have to be very careful because on one hand, we don't want to be apathetic. We're not pushing for being apathetic. But on the other hand, fighting is not the way we win these wars. Fighting against, fighting for power in whatever ways that might look is not ultimately the way we win. You know, that's exactly what the, the, the religious people of Jesus' day were hoping Jesus would do. You know, that, in the end, that's, that's why the religious, the Jews, that's why they wanted to crucify him because he's coming along saying he's their king, but he's not acting anything like a king supposed to act. And they're like, you cannot be our king. Our king is supposed to fight against this culture that is, that is, gonna, is trying to crush us and destroy us, and you're not doing that at all. You're telling us to turn the other cheek? That's why they wanted to get rid of him. You can't possibly be our king. We need a king who's going to fight against us, and he's saying no. The way you fight against that culture is not by wielding power, but by, but by actually relinquishing. And what, of course, is so, so ironic is, well, not ironic, Jesus was right. The Roman Empire crumbled and Christianity spread. And I think that we have to, we have to remember this because there is this tendency that to want to fight, to want to fight in whatever culture wars we're in. And I think the answer, again, is not apathy. It's that we serve. We serve those who are fighting against us rather than fighting. Now, how do we do this? How do we do this? We just kind of wake up one day and, all right, I'm going to serve. Here I go. No, this is why it's important that we realize what, what sets the context for this passage in Philippians. Because Paul, here's what he says in verse 5. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Now, the, the word attitude, I'm going to tell you, most translations now do not use that word. It's not, I wouldn't say it's the best word. Because the word there really means you're, you should have the, the same mind, the same mind as Christ. And what he's getting at here, and we know this because Paul, Paul's, well, Paul's the one that coined this whole concept, is he's talking about being one with Christ in mind. He's talking about you, you are united with Christ in your thinking. In your, in your, it's not just you kind of try to follow his example. It's that you become one with him. This is at the center of Paul's whole understanding of, of the faith, is that it's not like we just try to be like Jesus. It's that through faith we become one with him. That we can actually, this is why the Holy Spirit, this is why Christ sends the Holy Spirit. It's so that, Jesus doesn't just become our example, it's that we can actually be united with him and through the power of his spirit, we can have exactly the same mind as him so that it's not really coming from us in the first place. How do we serve? It's, well, it's through knowing Jesus. (laughs) It's through putting our faith in Jesus. It's through resting in Jesus. It's through wanting more and more and more of Jesus in our lives. 
The message of the Christian faith is not go out there and serve. The message of the Christian faith is come to me, become one with me, unite with me, and allow me to live through you. We now come to our time of communion. The ushers would please come forward for communion. And communion is precisely this opportunity for us to become one with Christ, to unite ourselves with him and to unite with him in his humility. What is communion all about? It's to remind us of this ultimate act of humility in which we see the very heart of Jesus, that the the bread and the cup, they represent the, the death of Jesus, the humility of Jesus, and that it's through that, through that, through being united with him, that we can go out and be the servant as he was. Will you bow your heads? Let's pray for communion. Dear Lord, we come before you this morning and... Um, I pray once again, Lord, that we would be, I think, overwhelmed by your humility, overwhelmed by who you are at your very core. God, I I pray that we would indeed, even as I am now, struggling to find words to express what this means that you died on a cross for us. Lord, that's why we take communion, that maybe through these elements, through something visible, through something tangible, our hearts might begin to understand a little bit more who you are. God, I pray that as we take these elements, we would realize that you are everything that we need. That as we eat the bread, as we drink the cup, that we are eating and drinking life itself. That as we do so, Lord, we can go out and we can serve because we know that we have everything that we need. We pray this in Jesus' name.